This is Sound Only, a Recapables miniseries about Neon Genesis Evangelion, now streaming on Netflix. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. We're your Sound Only co-hosts, here to record our deepest, darkest, most passionate analysis about one of the greatest TV shows ever made. This is our fifth episode of Sound Only, covering the TV episodes 22 through 26, which are the last episodes, the last TV episodes, at least, of Neon Genesis Evangelion. How do you get your voice to do that, man? This is, I, what? It's, it's, you know, what are you talking it's, about? I'm just saying that you it's got It's the this. Kaji energy. It's the Rio Kaji energy. Rip. Rest in peace. <laughs> it's the rip. It's the Kaji energy. It's that you know what I mean. It's the English. It's the it's original the English, English dub Kaji energy. The original English dub Kaji energy. Okay. All right. Did they bottle that? Did they sell it? I'm just wondering. <clears throat> I mean, not anymore. It's the new Netflix flow. You know, it's the, it's, that's what's in stores now. That's on the shelves. Um, you know what, Michael? Before we get into these these last few episodes. Uh, I did want to talk about a character who is sort of unceremoniously departs from the series. Uh, our main man, Toji. Um, you might have noticed, like, last episode, you know, we leave off with him being crushed in the Unit 3 entry plug. He's in the hospital. Hikari visits him in the hospital. And then for the rest of the last podcast episode, we just never mention him again. Uh, well, the show kind of does that. Toji doesn't really... He's sort of briefly mentioned... At one point in these last few episodes, as moving away, literally from one Tokyo line, three, yeah. literally one line and one scene, uh, yeah, he's, and he he's very much not the point of that scene too. So it feels very much like an aside to an aside when it's mentioned that Toji and Kensuke have moved away. We talked a little bit last episode about how Toji's motivations for being an Ava pilot stand in stark contrast to, say, Shinji's or Asuka's. And the fact that he enters into it in this transactional way, like, uh, or this conditional way, um, he asked that his little sister be moved to nerve facility, the, the nerve medical facility, so that she could get better treatment. And that's how, why he agreed to be an Ava pilot. Um, kind of make it so that his shelf life in this universe is limited, right? Because there's not there's only so far that you can push somebody like that. He can't be stretched to uh the logical limits that Shinji and Asuka are or Ray are stretched to. Right. And it feels like ostensibly the show would say, well, you know, he's injured in that he's injured because the the entry plug gets crushed and maybe he, you know, you just sort of assume that he leaves the show because he's too injured to pilot. But like, as we'll see by the end of this series, like all of these pilots have been injured. Shit, we saw badly. it at the very beginning of the series <laughs> yeah, when they were about yeah. to put Ray, they took Ray off the stretcher about to put her in the cockpit. Right. And all of the Evangelion units have been pretty fucked up at some point in the series. It's, it's so it, it's, it's not just that. It is, I, I do think that Toji's motivations for piloting the Ava in the first place are so radically different and so radically substantial compared to everyone else's that it's almost like Toji has that one fight that he participates in. It goes badly and and Nerve just sort of allows him to go, right? He's not, in other words, he's kind of, he's not broken enough and he's not depressed enough, frankly, of a character for Nerve and for the plot to require him to stay. And it, it gives his character, I think, in the long run, this really weird flavor in Ava fandom, right? Where Toji, even though he's one of the Ava pilots, he's not really seen as 
as sort of dominant and canonical in the same way that Shinji, Asuka, and Rei are. Would you agree with that, Micah? It feels like Toji is kind of, it's like, oh yeah, he was an Ava pilot. Like he's in the show at one point, even though you meet him like early on, you meet him before you meet Asuka, but it just feels like his motivations are so different in the show that there's a point at which even Ava fans kind of demote him to a secondary status. And it's because he's just not really plagued by the same issues as the rest of these pilots will be in the final episodes of the TV series. Yeah. I mean, like, he starts off, like, very... He could be the Kazuma Kuwabara character, but he's not in there long enough to develop that far. He just loses a leg and then he's gone. Yeah. Episode 22, Don't Be, begins with a flashback. It's Asuka and Kaji lying on the roofs looking at the stars. And this is before, um, narratively, before episode seven, when uh, right. Asuka dri- arrives in Japan. She, Her and Kaji are talking about how she's going to get to meet the third children, who's a boy. You like boys, right? You know, uh, Asuka? Right. Why don't you just try to try your luck with him? But Asuka doesn't want anything to do with boys who are smelly and stupid. Um, she wants a man. She wants Kaji in particular. And she gets on top of Kaji and is just kind of like, we can, like, what about, this could be us, but you plan. Yeah, it's a really weird moment where you have Asuka, who is clearly a 14-year-old girl, and, like, Kaji and her sitting out under, you know, it's night, and they're sitting out on a beach. And, you know, I think they're just trying to, Kaji's having this moment where he's just trying to relax and he knows that he's about to transport Asuka to Japan from the German branch of Nerve. And Asuka is just trying to initiate a sexual encounter with Kaji. And Kaji is, for I mean, for once in the series, in this flashback, he's trying to be an adult and tell her, like, you need to relax and you need to, you're not an adult. <laughs> yeah, like, stop trying to grow up so fast. Yeah, yeah. The gist of it. But yeah, Asuka just, she she rips open her shirt, right? And she just is like, look at me, look at me. So then we get a cut to baby Asuka, um, which, you know, like after she's done so much assist, insisting that she is an adult, it is played as though this is how she really is on the inside. And she's standing in this graveyard uh, hearing the echoing words of her mother. Asuka is is thinking back over a lot of her mom's discussion of being a mother and how she didn't really want Asuka and how she doesn't really want to be a mother. Um, And we also understand that at some point before her death, Asuka's mother goes uh, insane or she's institutionalized and she's holding... She's holding this very raggedy doll that she starts to address as if the doll itself is Asuka. and she she's basically taking care of this doll in a hospital bed, and she refuses to acknowledge the actual Asuka. Uh, and then we know that Asuka's mother dies, and we, you know, we we ultimately learn that Asuka's mother committed suicide. Uh, and it's this very dark scene, and we're starting to, you know, at the, at the top of this episode, we're basically engaging with the. The trauma that Asuka hints at, like several episodes ago when she's at the Hot Springs Masato and asks Masato, you know, I guess you know all about my past. We're finally learning what that past is. And it turns out to be uh, an incredibly bleak backstory about Asuka's mother. 
So we've got some crucial backstory out of the way. Uh, in present day, you know, Masato, Asuka, Shinji, they're all back in the apartment. You know, this is after a period where Shinji was at one point lost in the LCL for a month in Eva Unit 1. And uh, Masato's apartment has become very tense. Um, Shinji's, Shinji's made dinner in this particular scene, but Asuka is being very dramatic. She storms away from the dinner table. You know, the phone rings. She does this huge tirade about not wanting to pick up the phone. And Shinji answers the phone and realizes that um, Asuka, one of Asuka's relatives from Germany is called. Um, so Asuka has a conversation in German. Shinji is, sees it as an opportunity to maybe get to know his roommate a little bit better. And it's just kind of like, oh, is that your mom on the phone? You sound so different when you're speaking in a foreign language. Yeah. And, he's like eavesdropping, but he's, he's, it's like good natured eavesdropping, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And Asuka, like, is kind of in a weird state where she forgets to be mean to him for a second and is <laughs> just kind of like opening up to him about, like, oh, it's kind of weird. She's not really my real mom. Um, you know, like we just kind of talk because sort of out of obligation to each other and blah, 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 blah. And then she's like, wait a minute, hold up. Why am I talking to you about this? You're stupid and ugly and don't know anything. And then she storms off again. She's very hot and cold at this point in the series. And, you know, after this very strange encounter with Shinji in the apartment, after she gets off the phone with her, her relative, she's in the bathroom and she's, She's about to take a bath, but she's, I don't know. She's just, she's in the steamy bathroom obsessing over how she just doesn't want to live with Masato and Shinji. She doesn't want to, she doesn't want to share the same bath water as them. Um, and she just seems to be in this really just angry, inarticulate place where all of her all of her small irritations with Shinji and Masato have curdled into this very real resentment that has i feel like in recent episodes has begun to feel incurable does that sound right yeah yeah i mean like i th- i think that that's absolutely right considering the fact that it wasn't just the bath water it was the water that is in the washing machine and also yeah, the toilet says- seat. And <laughs> she's just like, I don't want to sit on the same toilet seat. I don't want to wash my clothes with yours. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to breathe your air. What's wild um, is that Masato over here, she's saying this out loud in the bathroom. And there's a cut to Masato in her bedroom at one point. And it's implied that Masato is overhearing all of this and is just sort of like, I can't, I can't engage with her. Yeah, it's uh, just like she's growing, like, and I, th- I think it's fair to say that her concern is reaching its height just because at the end of all this, uh, all of this bloviating about not wanting to share space with Masato and Shinji, uh, Asuka says, the person that I hate most is myself. Right, right. And it's like Masato notices all of this. I mean, I would say that for the past several episodes, Masato has noticed that something is wrong with Asuka. But Masato never really engages with Asuka the way she does with Shinji. Like, Shinji, Masato notices when things are wrong with Shinji, and in her own imperfect and, like, very often selfish way, Masato tries to engage with Shinji and figure out what's going on and address it. But Masato, at this point, just can't even bring herself to 
look at Asuka in the face. It's She's kind of shook and kind of exhausted. And at this point in the series, Kaji has died. And so you understand that Masato is dealing with her own shit. But also, it's very quickly established that no one has told Asuka that Kaji is dead. And so that feels like another ticking time bomb among the many ticking time bombs attached to Asuka Langley for you. Asuka is a mess of anxieties and hormones and once again is doing a synchronization test and also doing more poorly on it than she has ever done on anyone prior. Yeah, like her previously her problem was that she was doing well, but Shinji was starting to do better. And now Asuka's problem is that she is tanking. Yeah, she's regressing at this point. Right. Um, and it's this is just kind of like more that like one more hit than her ego can really take, right? Yeah. And so like after the sync test, Asuka storms off to the elevator where she runs into Ray. Um and <laughs> another <laughs> another instance of characters meeting in an elevator and exercising their enmities. But this time, it's it's a very loaded encounter in the elevator because Asuka just clearly doesn't want to talk after this sync test. Um, she does not vent to Ray like she did when Shinji beat her in the sync test. You know, Asuka and Ray just ride the elevator for a bit, and no one's talking. And it's a long shot. It's tense as hell. Uh, Asuka and Ray ride the elevator. No one talks until finally Ray despite her own judgment, Ray gives Asuka a bit of advice. She says, if you don't open your heart to your Ava, she won't move. And just immediately, before Asuka even tries to understand what the fuck that means, Asuka just unloads on Ray. I'm sick of people with Nike talk denim just talking to me however they feel like. <laughs> In this nerve HQ, the fuck y'all talking about? It's like is 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 that's is, the energy. That that's is her really energy. the energy. Though. That's really her energy. That's it's really also energy. like I was waiting for you to say some shit. That's very much what it is. It's like you, she's like she, I was waiting for you to talk. Oh man, oh she is yeah. So so Oscar is on her <clears throat> Cameron in front of the pool shit. Um, just. Like, you know, you, I don't need any help from you. Who are you? You don't know what you're talking about. Um, And and she she slaps. Slaps slaps Ray. Open palm slap. Yes. Bow. And then steps off the elevator. And her Um, fists are shaking. Shaking shaking with anger. Shaking with anger. Later on uh, in the holding bay, the deck, what are we calling it? It doesn't matter. Anyway, The catwalk. Asuka is in her plug suit staring sort of stupidly at her Ava unit and talking to it like it can understand her. She's just talking about like, you know, you just have to do what I say because you're my doll and what use does a weapon have for a brain anyway? And if you just do exactly what I say, everything will be fine. Mad um, condescending to Ava unit. Mad too. condescending. Mad. Just, you just don't talk to people like that if you want them to do stuff with you. They want, if you want them to fuck with you and build... Don't talk to them like they're like they're not there in the room with you. She's doing you know? the exact opposite of what Ray said. Ray was like, exactly. "Open your heart," the, and Oscar's the... like, "I'm putting down my foot." Is what I'm doing. <laughs> Put down the boot. Right, uh, and this is really unfortunate because just then the alarm goes off and an angel attacks. Yeah, at this point, 
Asuka's inarticulate and she can't fight, which sucks because an angel attacks in the midst of Asuka's meltdown at the moment. That angel is Ariel. And Ariel has the distinction of being our second space angel. We have a second space angel now. We had a falling Versace belt was the first space angel. And now we have uh, an angel that's actually further out in space, closer to the moon, that looks like, how would you describe it? It sort of looks like, a pair of wings with no actual body. It's a turtle dove with no torso. Um, and it's made of light. It's all uh, white. White it's light. It's all white. And it's in space. Coke white in space. The coke you ain't white. Never se- right. You ain't never seen an angel like this one. The coke white turtle dove in space. And it's huge. It's like a giant white coke white turtle dove in space. It's very far away. And so... The command center, they're like, all right, there, there's an angel. We got it up on, we got it up on the screens. We've identified it as an angel. You know, let's, let's get ready to send the pilots out. Yeah, so episode 23, Tears, begins with Nerv in, you know, their customary panic mode. Uh, they, they scramble together a game plan, and the idea is to send Ray up to the surface with the positron rifle to try to take this the coke white turtle dove out at long range. Um, but Asuka's like, fuck that. I'm going. I'm I'm number one. I'm singing. And she goes up there uh because she's just like, I'm I'm I this is this is my opportunity for redemption. This is how I'm going to validate this is myself. Dream girls like right at the showstopper. She is like, <laughs> you know, she's fighting with Jamie Foxx and Beyonce in the lobby of the music label. She's this just, is more like Eddie Murphy coming out and doing the Jimmy song. Yeah. Where he's just, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but Asuka's on one she's ready she's she's gonna redeem herself um, against Ariel Asuka's launched herself and Masato says you know what let her go out there if she fucks this up it's a wrap we're, we're decommissioning Asuka cause her sink ratio's in the toilet she's just she's not she's not on the ball anymore and so this this quickly becomes Asuka's sort of framed as Asuka's last stand. She doesn't get fucked up immediately, Micah. She, she, it, you know, the, the advantage in this fight is that the angel is in space. It's far away. And all <laughs> she has to do is aim the rifle, right? She's, yeah. So she's trying to line up this impossibly long distance shot when the angel then attacks. Aerial attacks. Um, which, I, it's kind of like, there's some, there's some rumblings in the command center about what exactly is happening. Yeah, there's a white um, light. It's like it's a, a white light, light yeah. that has no heat signature, so it's not like identifiable as any sort of weapon that they've encountered before, but it is scrambling the shit out of uh Asuka's brain patterns. It is also playing the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> yeah mad <It's> loud <laughs> extremely loud that's all you hear as the viewer is just you see this blinding white light aimed at Asuka and or it's really this it's it's a white light that's kind of bathing Asuka it's a natural white light and you just hear the hallelujah chorus and you see that Asuka's not really responding and she starts shouting and she's clearly under some sort of attack, but it's just not clear what the attack is. There's no physical damage being rendered to Unit 2, and yet Asuka is just in pain. Right. She keeps saying, like, no, don't come into me. Don't come into me. 
Like it's, I've don't come into my mind and my heart. Um, and it is, this is another one of those, uh, weird fever dream trippy sequences, um, where we learn more about the characters than we had ever hoped to know. Right. Um, and it is again, a flashback to Oscar's childhood, her mother, um, this time we get to actually see Asuka discover her mother's dead body. Right. Um, because her mother hangs herself and basically there's this, you know, a lot of the, her, her recollection of his, her mother is in, a lot of her recollection of her mother is played in these loops of animation. There's a doll hanging from a noose and spinning around. There's her actual mom hanging from a noose. There's you know, the moment where Asuka keeps running down a corridor and opening a door, and you're meant to understand that baby Asuka is running home to discover her mother hanging from the ceiling dead. And, you know, there are a lot of other grotesque shots where she, she's just agonizing over this, but she's also agonizing over Kaji, and she's she's wandering in crowds of people, and she's destroying... Uh, she's destroying another doll in her hands on a playground. And, you know, the, I, I think the theme that emerges in the dream is that she is, she's very much disgusted with and shocked by her own childhood. And that is what gives birth to this impulse in Asuka to, to be an adult, to grow up, to, to run away from all of these memories and all of this disempowerment that she associates with being a small child who discovered that, who first discovered that her mother didn't love her, and then discovered that her mother had become deranged, and finally discovered up close that her mother had killed herself. Wow, that's you. It was it's a terrible sequence, but you handled that really well. Thank um, you. This, Thank these you. are not one of those things that like are that. These this backstory is a lot. That, it's a lot. That they, they 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 occur in the second half of the season. Um, basically, there is a there's there's a there's a market change in tone of the show after like around episode sixteen, right? Due to a couple of uh, real world factors, um, there were parts of the show that were removed because they bore too much of a likeness to the Tokyo subway attack. Um, and also there, like the show was approaching being over budget. So there are a lot of repeat shots that you'll notice. And again, there are these kind of just like very difficult to describe dream sequences, um, that do the narrative work that maybe longer or more involved animation might have but yeah these they are the most art, they're the most artfully realized budget cuts that i have ever seen in a yeah. television <laughs> exactly i would put it um i know making these characters knows that these are teen characters that a lot of teenagers will naturally relate to and it almost feels like the the tragic backstory right this super traumatic bleak backstory for asuka is not meant to make her even more fucked up than any kid you know in real life. It's almost like it's there to it's legitimize it's there it. To, it's there to legitimize it in the way that, like, this could be happening to the person that you know like this at your school. And yeah. You, and, there's, and you could be just completely unawares of it. Right. But that's true, but it also feels like 
even if you don't like even if you're a person like Oscar, you have the same self-esteem problems as Oscar. You have the same depressive problems as Oscar. Even if you don't have Oscar's backstory of yeah, your mom was institutionalized and she said she didn't love you and she killed herself. Sometimes being that depressed and fucked up can feel like that's your backstory. You know what I mean? It it's sort of the show by giving Oscar this backstory feels like it's saying even if this isn't your life isn't this extreme. Your childhood isn't this extreme. Sometimes it feels like this. Sometimes you can just feel so sad that it feels like you must have had the most fucked up life in the world. Even if you're just a kid in the suburbs who, you know, has a lot of common but still meaningful self-esteem problems and, and stuff that Oscar goes through in this series. Does that make sense? I think it's kind of naughty, but then again, so is the rest of this show um, as it, you know, like comes to its conclusion. On the battlefield, Asuka is still immobilized and Rey is the one that has to come to the rescue. Um, she manages to line up her shot and hit the angel in orbit, um, but... Basically, they're going to need a lot more power. They're going to need more power she in order the to AT pierce it. Right. Yeah, she has the AT field. They're going to need a lot more power to pierce the AT field at that range. So Gendo has a plan. Gendo's like, listen, Ray, we're finally going to use it. We're finally going to use the Lance of Longinus. And Emily Fiutsky sort of intervenes at this point and is like, what? We're going to use the Lance of Longinus. And first of all, the show has not even explained what the Lance of Longinus does. They've mentioned it, and we've seen a shot where Ray is going to retrieve it, I believe, in Terminal Dogma. But we don't really know much about what the Lance of Longinus is. But in any case, Unit Zero heads down to the depths of Terminal Dogma. It pulls the Lance of Longinus from the crucified angel's chest. It heads back up to street level. Unit Zero gets, gets a good, gets good three-step approach and just destroys this thing yeah. with the Lance of Longinus. Well, it's like the Lance of Longinus, it's sort of, one, it spirals, uh, it has this weird organic reaction where the Lance itself sort of spirals and tenses up into a really tight, sharp pole while Ray is throwing it. She throws it through the sky. All of the clouds part. It's like all of the clouds on Earth evaporate <laughs> as the Lance of Longinus leaves the atmosphere, curls into space, hits the AT field, it twists the AT field and just snaps it out of existence, hits the angel, and then the angel it, it, the, the angel is vaporized upon contact with the Lance of Longinus. And then everyone in the command center is sort of left to regret that, well, you threw it into space, and we don't actually have any technology to get it back to Earth. So... <laughs> We don't, and it's the only one. Also, it's, yeah, it's the only. It's the only one. It's red. It looked really cool. Yeah, it really, and you lost really it. cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you lost it. You lost it to the vacuum of space. Thanks right. a lot, Gendo. Yes. yes. So the angel is defeated by Ray, really by the lace of Longinus, but by Ray. Yeah. And Oscar takes this personally. Right. So Oscar is the one who rushed into this fight. Oscar is defeated and she is she's forced to live these traumatic memories of hers she's defeated and humiliated in the process and the episode ends with Asuka sitting she's sort of above ground but basically Ritsuko's put her in quarantine right because they 
the command center doesn't really understand what the angels' psychological attack was. And so they're worried, like, is there some residual... They're worried about whether Asuka is contaminated in some way. And so they put this quarantine tape around her as she sits out on the tarmac. And Shinji walks up to this tape. And Asuka, it's... it's it's this shot where Asuka looks like she's sitting in timeout. She looks like a child. She's sitting. Yeah, she's in the fetal position. Yeah, she's literally in the fetal position on this tarmac. Shinji's standing at the tape and trying to be like, Asuka, you know, are you okay? And Asuka is just screaming and is just like, get the fuck away from me. So you have Asuka on the tarmac sitting in quarantine and the quarantine just looks like a timeout corner for a child. And it feels like it's just one of many scenes in recent episodes where the show is really underscoring that despite all of Asuka's best efforts to present herself as an adult, she is a child and she's behaving childishly and she cannot, through no matter of bravado, she cannot exceed the fact that she's 14 years old and she cannot live with the fact that she is 14 years old and she can't grow up any faster than she can in real life. We open the next episode and our ill-formed little nuclear family is just in disarray. Um, Shinji and Pinpin seem to be the only people with their wits about themselves. Masato is spending all hours by the pale blue light of a computer screen, missing Kaji and trying to unravel the secrets of nerve and not talking to people. And Asuka is over at Hikari's house. She hasn't been home in a few days and she's just blankly staring at the TV playing Sega Genesis. Right. And not even talking to Hikari while she does this. She's just sitting in front of the screen and Hikari is sitting behind her and she... Like Hikari seems afraid of Asuka. She's she's yeah. hosting her at her house because she knows that Asuka's going through some shit. But Hikari yeah. is just clearly not equipped to. It's just like she's brought a, a like a wounded rabid animal into her house and doesn't know how to take care of it. It's like after Asuka's finished playing Sega, she's just like she she just decides that this is over. She's just like, hey Hikari, let's sleep, which is just <laughs> like. That's one way to to talk to people, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, that Asuka has completely lost her faculty for interacting with other human beings by right. this point. Asuka and Hikari are in bed. And they sleep in the same bed. And, you know, Asuka sort of turned her back to Hikari. And Hikari is just, she's in her pajamas and she's staring up at the ceiling in this way that just feels like she's wide awake and she is dreading She's dreading Asuka saying anything. She's sort of just hoping that Asuka passes into sleep so that she can go to sleep. But otherwise, she's just terrified of Asuka's energy in this moment. Surprisingly, this is the first time that you see Asuka anything less than, like, rampantly confident. Yeah. I guess yeah. this is she, she. She's just like, hey, I'm. I'm sorry if I'm being. I'm sorry for being a nuisance. Is is what she says, which is just not a thing that you expect Oscar Langley Soryu to say. And in Hikari is accommodating in that moment. She's like, you know, don't worry about it. And Oscar starts venting to Hikari about how, you know, she. I mean, she's clearly thinking back to the previous angel battle with Ariel. She's thinking back to the sort of 
traumatic psychological attack that she suffered. And she's just like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't pilot the Ava. I couldn't do, I, you know, I, she's just reveling in her, her misery and in her inability at this, at this moment, at this, at this super low moment in her career as an Ava pilot. And she's just, it's like Asuka's sobbing and she's clearly falling apart. And Hikari can't, it's like in this moment, Hikari doesn't really, she can, she can say, you know, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm your friend. But Hikari is kind of just lying there and she seems terrified because she doesn't know really how to console Asuka. But also Asuka in this moment, because she opens by apologizing for, you know, in her words, being a nuisance, you also get this sense that Asuka knows that she is just breaking Hikari's heart in this moment. Um, yeah. And Hikari, well, breaks out the equivalent of the 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 one-size-fits-all response of, damn, that's crazy. She's just like, I think that you should do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And it's quietly, like, a very poignant piece of advice just because... I mean, up to this point, Asuka, so much of her, not not in the literal sense, but like in the figurative sense, is tied up in whether or not she can pilot an Ava. And it is evident that she is not like a singular talent. She is, she's not the singular talent that she thought she was um, at, this, at this juncture. Right. And even apart from... Hikari's advice to Asuka in that moment. There's just something about the fact that if you think about the moment when Asuka's sleepwalked into Shinji's bed and she started crying and said, mommy, and Shinji just instinctively, he, he moved across the floor from Asuka, right? And he slept out of the bed and he was like, whatever, I'm going to leave her to it. Like, she's, you know, she's not any more grown up than I am. And it this moment feels very different from that because it's these two people in this really difficult moment where none of them can really say the right thing to the other. And Hikari is just so uncomfortable and Asuka is so fucked up, but they stay in that bed together because they're friends and that's what friends do. And Asuka's in a really fucked up place, but like Hikari just stays with her because, because that's what, that's the only thing she can do, and that's what friends are supposed to do in a moment like this. Um, and it it feels very oddly affirming, even though we're watching Asuka just totally fall apart. Asuka can't pilot the Ava, and yet, you know, there's another there's another angel that attacks the next day, um, in broad daylight. His name is Armasale. When we say Armasale attacks, it doesn't even really attack. It's this. It's this. It just kind of hovers in a ring. It's above a ring. The, it's like a big yeah. white ring. It's a double helix. Uh, you know, we get closer to it at one point. And we see that it's a, the ring is actually a double helix, but it's a big white ring floating in the middle of the sky. Masato sees it while she's driving outside. Um, and even though Asuka's sink ratio is in the toilet and she can't really pilot and she's in a shitty place. You know, Gendo wants to deploy Asuka, and, just, and he's sort of like, well, you know what? Deploy her anyway. Even if she can't fucking move the Ava, she can be a decoy. Yeah, Asuka's sink rate is in the toilet, and Gendo's like, fuck it. It doesn't matter. We can still use her as a decoy. And they deploy um, Unit 2 and Unit 0, Ray and Unit 0, together and because Unit 1 is still in quarantine because it is an actualized god and... 
to quote the Sele Council, um, they have no use for an actualized God. Yeah, they're afraid of that shit. They're afraid of Unit 1, so they're just like, keep it in restraints, keep it in the basement. We cannot break this thing out again, or it's going to backfire. Asuka in Unit 2 is above ground, and she's so out of sorts that she can't even walk out of the... She can't even walk off the, the launch platform. And at that point... Masato's like, nah, we get her back down here. Get her back. Even as a decoy, she's not very useful because she she cannot move. Unit two, so it's just Ray up there. It's just Ray, and because this because Armasel is just hovering above ground and not actually doing anything, not engaging. Um, her orders are to just kind of wait and see, right? But. It's base. It's at that moment that Ray notices that Armasail is moving and about to attack, and it breaks off and snakes towards her. Uh, this and it's this giant beam of like it's a it's a worm. It's it's, a, like it's a, a caterpillar. It's a yeah. It's like a it is a neon light in the shape of like a giant fire hose that like is just snaking towards Ray, pierces her AT field immediately. Yeah. And begins to fuse with her. Yeah, it's like veining. It's sort of, it, once it hits her skin, it's not like it causes damage. Instead, it just sort of turns into... Everything gets really vascular and bulbous and weird looking. Right. And while while it's getting vascular in terms of like Unit Zero's armor and skin, also in the Unit Zero cockpit, Ray's own plug suit is also sort of filled with the angel's presence, basically. Um, and in the midst of it, it's sort of like Ray is staring down at her arms, which are becoming all veiny and they're bulging. And the next thing you know, Ray is in this sort of dream space, and it's a very sparse space. And there are two copies of her. There's one copy of her uh, that just looks like Ray in her plug suit standing on a hard surface and then standing before Ray is a version of Ray that has her head downcast and is standing like two feet deep in the LCL. And these two versions of Ray start having a conversation. This is the second angel in a row that is making forcible contact and making a very violent effort to know the human heart and mind. Um, and this conversation that Ray is having with this mirrored version of herself is about what each of them are feeling. Um, and there's kind of a lot of circular talk about, are you me? Am I you? Or which one is myself and right. which one of us is yourself? And, so on and so forth. But the main thing that you take away from the sequence is that Ray does feel things. Although it's not abundantly clear which whether those feelings were implanted during this sequence or whether these are just manifesting at this time. Yeah, Ray and the Angel start having this conversation about pain and loneliness. And it's sort of you know, the the weird nature of this angel's attack where it's infecting Unit Zero skin, it's infecting Ray's skin, and the angel seems to be directly asking her, like, this is this is pain. I'm causing you pain, aren't I? And Ray keeps going, what? Pain? What? And the angel's like, pain, this. This sensation is pain, right? And Ray 
at one point goes, oh, no, 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 this isn't pain. This is loneliness. And the angel, the angel sort of, the angel sort of echoes that sense back. And you get this sense, uh, you, in this back and forth, it feels like the angel is specifically trying to understand the human sensation of loneliness, which is otherwise alien to the angels and unique to humans. This sense of pain and loneliness being related and pain not just being a physical thing that maybe previous angels caused by shooting giant crucifixes uh, through buildings and, and burying kids under rubble. It feels like the angel is like, this is pain, right? And Ray is like, oh, no, this is loneliness. And the angel's like, ah, okay, I understand. Thank you for your time, Ray. And then the angel sort of releases Ray back to her present consciousness yeah, in the cockpit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, she, uh, yeah. she's crying and, into her hands. And she's like. Right. And she's the, just like, oh, these are my tears. These are thick. Like, I, why am I crying? Right. Uh, and. Gendo makes. Makes an executive decision to send unit one above ground. Take it out of quarantine. Remove the restraints. Let's just see what happens because we, we, Ray is too valuable to lose. Right. Um. And Shinji comes above ground, and there's a there's a brief cut to Asuka, who is still in the cockpit of Unit 2, and she's just like, it's not fair. They didn't send Shinji up to save me when I was in trouble. Um, but Shinji goes above ground, and Armisel turns his attentions to, to Shinji. Shinji's about to befall the same fate as Rei, but... So- Again, this angel is sort of like a giant worm at this point, or giant snake at this point. And one end of it is just attached itself to Ray. And so the other end of the angel is attacking Shinji. And so at one point, Ray sort of observes, oh, it's attacking Shinji. It, it seems to be establishing a link between her and Shinji. And at one point in the cockpit, Ray wonders. Is this, is this because what I really want? Yeah, it's yeah, like, is, 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 do I want to, to be, be one, one with, with Akari? Shinji? Right. It's just kind of like it. It almost it, tell me your reading on this because it it seemed to me like she was just like this is no what I want is to save Shinji and she basically re- reverses the. There's a lot of fake science jargon that goes into like that's rushed into the scene at this point, yeah. but. Basically, she absorbs the angel into her Ava unit and into herself right. and self-destructs. Right. Unit zero's gone. The, unit, the angel's gone. The angel's defeated. Congrats. But unit zero is gone. Uh, the only survivor above ground is Shinji in unit one. The explosion left a giant crater. Um, and all that is left of unit zero is like just the fucked up entry plug. Um, and the entry plug looks is, worse than Toji's entry plug. It yeah, looks flat. It it's flat. It looks, yeah, it's, it's flattened. It's, it's singed all around the edges. It's cracked in pieces. And there's a shot where they, they peer inside and there's just mangled limbs in there. And Ritsuko is just like, this is now a secret operation. Like nobody say anything, retrieve the entry plug and dispose of all the contents. Yeah. So Ray is gone. And Shinji is distraught, and he's back in the apartment. He's in his bedroom. He's got, you know, he's got music playing on the bed. He's not really listening to it, and he he just looks distraught. 
in Masato's home. Masato walks into Shinji's bedroom, and we get a really strange moment between Masato and Shinji because Shinji is mourning Ray in this moment. You get a sense that Masato is also aghast, but also Masato has just been walking around all of this time still with uh, the grief from Kaji's death. And so you have these two characters who are processing related but also different traumas in this moment. And Masato is trying to... Masato is trying to to play the guardian figure in this moment. She's trying to be emotionally accountable to Shinji. She's trying to help this kid who lost one of his fellow pilots just now. And But her only sort of good idea for how to console Shinji is, is to like grab his hand in a way that feels kind of loaded. It, it feels like Given given a lot of what we know about Masato's insecurities and her sort of her her insecurities around men, it's this moment where she's trying to hold Shinji's hand on his bed, maybe just in this moment of of familiarity and solidarity, but it also feels like she's maybe coming on to him in a strange, inappropriate way. I don't know. What do you make of this scene, Micah? I, it just feels like there are so many competing connotations to the relatively simple act of Masato grabbing Shinji's hand on the bed. I think it would be different if she just walked in the room and sat down and tried to hold his hand without saying a whole lot. But like the preamble of like, I wish I knew how to do other things, yeah. but all I know how to do is this. Yes, that's how she frames it. Yeah, that, that language makes the interaction weird in a way it otherwise wouldn't be. And accordingly, like, Shinji reacts very poorly to it. The moment Masato touches his hand, he just, he he snaps his hand away. He turns away from her. He barks. He's just like, leave me alone. And Masato just walks out of his room. And she, you know, she's talking to herself. I think further underscoring the sense that there's something romantic or sexual about how she tries to address Shinji in this moment is that her... Once she steps out of Shinji's room, she just wonders aloud whether Shinji is afraid of women. Um, and then she kind of, she checks herself and she says, no, maybe he's just, a, you know, he's he's afraid of everyone. But the fact yeah, that he's her afraid first, of getting close to people. He's afraid yeah. of getting close to people. It's just, again, it's so loaded that the first way she phrases that is maybe he's afraid of women. And yeah, yeah. you just get the sense that this household has become home to a lot of uh, trauma that is running up against a lot of sexual tension. And that sexual tension is clearly inappropriate considering that there's one adult and two children living in this apartment. So after this, you know, very close misstep, Masato sequesters herself in a room again and is just rifling through can Starbucks double shots going over the files that were on that USB drive that Kaji gave to her when the phone rings and apparently Ray is alive. Yes, despite despite the carnage despite, we saw in that fight. <laughs> yeah, despite her just, you know, being vaporized no before her eyes, right? Yeah. Then then a then a greasy stain on on the landscape just 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Ray is alive. And, and apparently, like, it's just really funny that... Okay, so this is where we finally 
come to understand that Ray is um that they have been in fact you know, producing different rays. This is the third one right. at this point. She, she says, says I'm the third one. But she doesn't know. That's the thing. It's it's sort of Shinji is like, oh man, what happened? Like, are you okay? What's going on? And Ray is like, what are you talking about? Oh, I must be the third one. Right. And it's really it's it's funny that they that Nerva's basically they'd given her like this one eye bandage and like an arm sling and they're just like, Yeah, a lot of injuries, this is, but this is a lot of injuries, but she'll make it. Yeah. Yeah. So Ray is just like, you know, yeah, I'm the I she is goes through this sequence of just realizing stuff over the next like five or so minutes. Um she goes back to her apartment and notices uh, Gendo's broken glasses on her dresser and rather than regarding them as the previous Ray would warmly, she picks them up and begins to crush them in her hand. Yeah. And sort of inexplicably, like she doesn't even understand why she's doing it, it feels like. She's just like, it feels very impulsive. Like she's just sort of yeah. going with what her muscle memory is her false muscle memory in this case is sort of telling her about this artifact of Gendo Akari. Did you read that as her baby being upset about being brought back to life? I mean, like, Oh, do you see it that way? Think about like, imagine you finally shuffled off your mortal coil and only to be pulled back from the ether. Wouldn't you be pissed? I would be. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I I never thought of it that way, of just the general, like, I wanted to die. I, I've always thought of this scene as her her memory starting to betray Gendo specifically. Of like, no. oh. Well, I mean, like, that is probably the more... I don't think that they're, the, the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. I think it's more so, like, after she's decided to sacrifice herself to save Shinji um, along with this angel, it's kind of like the most human decision she's made up to a point. Like, she becomes a real person in that moment in a weird way. Yeah, but even, I would say even in, like, think of the episode where she, um, remember when she rushes Zero well with the N2 mine? It feels like that's a good mm-hmm. early, that's like a good earlier yep. moment where she makes a decision that is regardless of Gendo, right? It's a, that To me, that feels like when she starts making decisions that even if they're not decisions about specifically instinctively protecting Shinji Akari, they're decisions that, that are... It's, it's like she's developing her own real ego as opposed to the ego which Gendo Akari has assigned to her, if that makes sense. And she's developing a mm. sense of self-determination and now that she's the third Ray, that sense of self-determination regards Gendo differently. And it sort of looks at him with this sense of, like, she's crushing his classes in her hands because she knows that something about Gendo, even if it is not right. right it's yeah. not, not only not right, but something about Gendo is at odds with her emergent sense of self-determination. That's kind of how I look at this scene. Then slam cut to naked Ritsko being shaken down by the Sele Council. Why is Ritsko naked? Like, she's standing I naked. She's stark naked in the scene. And, and Sele jokes about it. You. They joke about it. Yeah. They're just like, so I, you don't feel any shame? She's just like, I do not feel any shame at this time. Right. There's a, there's, it is implied that some, that some real weird shit happened before we showed up. Yeah. Um, yes. In this scene. Yeah. But 
Sele is asking Rizko a bunch of questions and not being satisfied with the answers. And eventually they let her go. And they wonder whether or not they've made the right decision because, you know, like they had they had Rizko just now. They had Fuski like two weeks ago. You know, like we can't just leave them our prisoners go. But the important takeaway from this scene is that they that Sele has started production on their own line of of Ava units. And that yeah, like the, mass the production produced. is they're gonna mass yeah, they've, they've nearly completed that production. Right. And that some big plan is about to be set in motion. Right. So at this point, Ray is back. That's that's kind of a weird development that people are gonna have a hard time explaining, considering that Ray very clearly died. And meanwhile, you have Masato sort of closing in on a lot of of Kaji's posthumous hints at the true nature of Nerve and Sele. And Shinji's in the apartment by himself and he gets a phone call. He gets a phone call from Ritsuko. Ritsuko is like, hey, Shinji, um, just listen to me. Your security detail is not following you at the moment. Come down to the basement. Come down to Central Dogma. So we see Ritsuko in the depths of Nerve and she swipes the key card and sort of before she can enter... She realizes that Masato, our dear spy, our dear James Bond Jr., Masato is behind her, and Masato wants to see where Ritsuko's headed. And Ritsuko's like, okay, cool, but behind you, Masato, Shinji's here. So, you know what? How about the three of us all mosey on down, 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 down into the depths of Nerve HQ so I can show you some of the shady shit that Nerve is up to. So I can blow your mind. Blow your fucking mind. And so they get in an elevator. They head down to the basement. And there's a series of rooms that Ritsuko ends up walking them through. The first room is Ray's room, but it's not. How would you describe it, mate? It's like a laboratory. It's a laboratory. It's a a laboratory slash dungeon slash like veterinary hospital. Veterinary hospital is it. That's the vibe. It looks like, but if, if you were an evil veterinarian, you know, um, but apart from it being this laboratory, it has a, it has a bed and it has, it basically has the basic elements of Ray's apartment. And you start to, you realize that this is basically like a replica of Ray's apartment that's down in the basement for some reason. And Shinji wonders what what this room is all about. And Masato's like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're here to see. So Rizko takes them onward. And the next room they're in is like a giant room with with a cross and a bunch of Evangelion skulls in the ground. And Rizko explains that these are the prototypes. This is the this is the Ava graveyard, and it's filled with. Well, no, 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 nope. no, no. Crucially, Shinji Shinji says, "Is this the Ava graveyard?" And Ritsuko says, "Nah, it's just a dumping ground." Damn, that's cold as shit. Damn, damn. Uh, but Masato's not satisfied. She's like, "This isn't it. This isn't it. Show me the thing that I came here to see." Ritsuko. So Ritsuko finally takes. Masato and Shinji to the room we've seen a few times. The room with the capsule in the middle of the room where usually we see Ray just sort of floating in LCL in a capsule. And they have a conversation. Ritsuko flips a switch and it's sort of like it is revealed that this 
giant fish tank of LCO contains a bunch of Ray dummies. This is the Nate, the true nature of the dummy plug project. Right. It's like the, so around the room, right? So you have the capsule in the center of the room, but reads go, the fish tank is sort of the actual wall to wall of the circular room is, is filled with naked smiling Ray clones. Um, and it's, it reads sort of clarifies it like these, the, the rays that you see, the dozens and dozens of Ray dummies that you see in this tank, the only difference between them and the Ray who's currently upstairs right now walking around is that these Rays don't have souls. And she, she at one point, I think, refers to them as like a source for spare parts. She basically looks at them as tools, as dolls, as Asuka once happened to call Ray. They're just a bunch of dolls, and they're there to be sort of plugged into the Evangelion units. And that is the true nature of Ray. She's just a dummy, and she's meant to pilot the Ava, and she's totally disposable. And when she dies, they just upload a soul to another one. And hopefully, once Sele starts mass producing Evangelion units, they can use like multiple dummies at a time to pilot the Evangelion units is the basic idea here. We have all these uh, dummy copies of Ray, and Ritsuko very visibly regards them with some disgust. So does Masato, um, too. Like, everybody, Masato, Ritsuko, Shinji, are all just sort of horrified. It's just that Ritsuko's been read into what's going on. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ritsuko knows what's going on, and also Ritsuko has a dark connection to Ray as we've already kind of established by this point. We say disgust, but really it's, you know, something closer to jealousy. Um, yeah. And this is like the first time she ever says that she's jealous of Ray in any real certain terms. Yeah, you just, you get this sense, you know, I mean, it's been sort of subtly hinted at throughout the series with Ritsuko, and it's certainly unsubtly described in Dr. Naoko Akagi's relationship with Gendo and Ray that there is a there is a very perverse sexual jealousy that Gendo pays all of this attention to Ray and has this very close relationship with Ray and Ritsuko has sort of inherited her mother's jealousy about Ray um and so in this moment Ritsuko's resentment boils over and she reveals to Masato um this console that she has in her hand she hits a button and all of the Ray clones in the fish tank start to dissolve and they break apart and they're gone. And this is sort of Ritsuko just unravels on the floor. She falls to her knees and you get the sense that she's just made a really bad decision. She's made a choice. She's made a yeah, choice. to Yeah, and she's made a choice in defiance of Gendo Akari. Which, uh, you know, as as we all are intimately aware of, uh, is not usually a, a a thing that leads to a happy and long existence. Right, right. And we should say, she's made a choice in defiance of Gendo, and who among us doesn't want to defy Gendo Akari, right? But 
it's not an admirable choice. You get, just because she falls to her knees and she's she again is regarding Ray with this disgust and jealousy. You get the sense that she's arrived at the decision to destroy these clones and that these clones probably shouldn't exist, but that Ritsko also is still like a very bad person who has a very perverse role in the very worst activities at Nerve. Um, and so, yeah, you just, and also in this moment, it just feels like this really marks the break between Masato and Ritsko. Like you have these characters who, were these, I don't know, I feel like at one point they were gal pals, right? They were the college friends. And now you just have Masato with the gun and Ritsuko on the ground. And yeah, these two characters aren't really coming back from this. So this episode opens with Asuka sort of once again in flashback reliving her mom's death. And then we get a very uh, harrowing shot. Present day Asuka. She's been missing from Nerve for seven days. She is emaciated. She looks like she has, she's starved and she's lying. Yeah, her cheeks are sunken in. She has, she is just soaking in a bathtub in a bombed out building in the aftermath of the angel attack. And she's just staring up into the sky, just waiting to die. Yeah, and it's like her, her clothes are folded on a chair next to her. And it's like the bathtub she's in looks like it's filled with blood and rust. And I don't know. I mean, I have always looked at this shot. It, it seems like Asuka has tried to kill herself in this scene. Things between Nerve and Sele are bad. And Masada continues to try to uncover the dark underbelly of Nerve by talking to Ritsuko again. But she doesn't really learn anything. Yeah. Yeah, it was like Ritsuko's speaking in tongues at this point. <laughs> Ritsuko is not really much help to anyone at this point in the series. Um, she's like, she feels betrayed by Gendo and she's just not very coherent at this moment. She's not of use to anyone who's trying to get useful information, including myself. You know, the thing is that like, it's not just Ritsuko though. Like everybody is useless to everyone else at this it's point. Like, Masato's um, got a cool head on her shoulders, but every, every other character, Asuka, Ritsuko, Gendo, all of these characters feel like they are running out of time and everyone is at their wits end. Um, and Shinji Ikari right, has so, to like, he's taking a walk at this point. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, I gotta go feel the sun on my face and, you know, like just listen to the waves lap the shore for a second. Um, out at the waterfront, Shinji encounters a boy that looks sort of like Ray. His skin is similarly pale. His hair is similarly feathery. His eyes are similarly red. And he's humming Ode to Joy to himself. Yeah, he's got like a very happy, oh, happy ass vibe to him. It's, it's oh, like happy ass the rapper energy. energy to him for some reason. <laughs> he's like sitting on a post-apocalyptic beach, humming Ode to Joy, smiling. And wearing a schoolboy uniform, but we've never seen this motherfucker at school. Who is he? You gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be wary of the relentlessly positive people. Yeah, man. he's like, what that. are they hiding? Yeah. What are they hiding? Right. And Shinji just encounters this boy, and the boy turns to himself and introduces himself. And what is his name, Micah? His name is Kaoru. Kaoru. And Kaoru. Hey, Shinji. <laughs> um, ah, I know you. It's so nice to Shinji meet you. Shinji Akari, the, 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 the third children 
I heard that you had some pretty good sync rates. Yeah. It's it's nice to meet yes. you. Right. So so Kaoru doesn't really do a whole lot except be extremely friendly and smile warmly. Yeah, in, we um, learn he's the fifth child. He is the fifth children sent directly by, like, sent personally by Sele. Personally. Sent by Sele directly. <laughs> sent by the monolith men. Sent by the <laughs> sent by the floating tablets yeah. um, that that we've met a bunch of times at this point. Um, and Masato kind of recognizes something's fishy about that. Something's yeah, up. Yeah, he's he's like that's the thing. He he really is too happy. That I what I love about this character, uh, Keoru, is that <laughs> this show has gotten so depressing at this point that the main point of suspicion with him is that he's happy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sort of puts you on edge as the viewer because everybody's been having these psychological breaks and then you just see this happy kid and you're like, mm, 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 this is not right. He's some sort of spy. What the <laughs> fuck is this? Get the get this kid the fuck out of here. Um, yeah, but he's nice to show you. Like it's, yeah, it's understandable that you would have limited patience for somebody like this showing up this late in the or game. Or it's not even patience. It's just he's, he's profoundly disorienting. Sort of the first impression of yeah. power is that he's profoundly disorienting. But to Shinji, Shinji like gloms onto this kid almost immediately because he's nice yeah. and optimistic and he wants to talk to Shinji Akari. And Masato's super tense, Abuki's super tense about it. They're all like, yeah, he's the new pilot and his sync ratio is really high, but just no one in the command center feels good about it. So Kaoru leaves the sync test. He rides the escalator up a bit and he runs into Ray. And the moment these two characters run into each other is, is quite bizarre um they have they have a very strange inexplicable interaction where um you know Kaoru's like ah you must be Hayanami um we have similar bodies he notes that right he notes that they that he and Ray have similar bodies and Ray is sort of weirded out by this interaction and she's just like I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> Um, it's like, what are you doing here? I don't know what you're talking about. Please stop talking to me. And so he wanders out of the 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 the, the test facility. Just you know, just I, I don't. A, a thing that I kept noticing is his neck is long <laughs> as fuck too. It's just like I. It's everything is everything is off about this cat, yeah. right? And he's just like, hey, Shinji, were you were you waiting? Yeah, for he me? runs into him in a in a room we haven't seen yet in the show, which is the bathhouse. And Shinji is just sort of sitting in the lobby out, like right beyond the bathhouse by himself. And he appears to be waiting for Kaoru at the elevator. And Shinji's just like, begins opening up to him in a way that he doesn't immediately do with any other character on the show. Yeah. And he's just like, you know, I just, he's just like, were you waiting for me? And he's just like, no, nah, I wasn't waiting for you. I just, I don't really want to go mm. home right now because home is not that tight. Like, you know, I think I'm rather just shower here. And Kaoru's just like, mind if I join you? Right. <laughs> um, uh, And Shinji's like embarrassed by the question, yeah. right? He's just like, uh, yeah, uh, 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 yes, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, let's go. Let's people go to the wanting to together. spend time with Shinji Akari, unprecedented. Yeah, it's kind of like he's just been tossed a bomb right. and like has to defuse right. it. And so they go into this bath, um, and there's no one else in the bathhouse. It's just Shinji and Kaoru. Um, and they sort of 
They spend like a while in there and they're just ta- they're just shooting the shit. I don't know. This, that's the profound thing about Kyra. He, they're just sort of talking about life, man, in the bathhouse in a way that Shinji, Shinji never gets to just talk about life. He's always got Masato being like, why don't you want to pilot the Ava? He's trying. It's, it's yeah, it's just like it's, he at this point. Everybody is telling has been telling him about life. Nobody ever just talks to him about it. Right. Or also, yeah. people are always sort of dumping their problems onto Shinji, right? And Kaoru is the first person who's sort of with, he's with Shinji in a very low-key moment. He's sort of, he's fine letting Shinji Akari sit back and just talk about himself. And yeah, Kaoru just wants to learn about Shinji Akari. And he just smiles as Shinji talks and vents, but otherwise has this very pleasant experience with Kaoru in this bathhouse after a long day's work. Kaoru's just been introduced, and yet very, very rapidly. Again, in this way that's so, it, it's so disarming that it feels profound on some level. It feels like there is a platonic and quasi-romantic subtext that is emerging between these two characters. I don't, how would you describe it, Micah? Well, I mean, like, it's it's done in the smaller notes of the animation, right? Kind of like most of these things are. It's in the way that Shinji blushes when Kaoru asks him, asks him, like, you know, can I join you in in the bath? Or, you know, like, asks him literally anything about himself. Something that is would otherwise, it'd be an intrusive question for a different character. But with him, it's just kind of like... No one's ever really asked me that before in that way. And the subtext is kind of like halfway between platonic and romantic. You um, know what it is? It's, in, the fa- it's like a bunch of, it's like third date questions. That's what it is. It's the fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's third date questions. It's third date questions, but also like, you know how in, well, I mean like in the manga, they actually share a kiss. And it's like this isn't really presented in any unclear terms in the anime in the in the in the Japanese in the Japanese version, like the the language around their interactions more heavily implies that they that this relationship is is kind of romantic. But here, it's Shinji more so receiving kindness and not knowing where to deposit it, like whether it's supposed to be just like the pure friendly kind. Or possibly the romantic kind. And it's also like, I don't know, I think of the the one time when Shinji almost kissed Asuka in her sleep, and then the other time where Asuka violently kisses Shinji. Like, all of these rare moments of human contact for Shinji are always presented as really kind of offensive and uncomfortable and in, encroaching. And Kaoru is just the first character who comes along, and it feels like he... Uh, it feels like he and Shinji are having like. It doesn't feel like he wants anything. Yeah. Yes. Is, yes. Is, yes. Yeah. Kaoru doesn't really want anything, and also the intimacy that they forge feels easy. You know, it 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 doesn't come atta- It doesn't come with all sorts of ugly, immature tension. If anything, Kaoru is kind of getting Shinji to lower his guard and to be, to unball his fists a little bit, right? I think, that, I feel like that's the magic of Kaoru, is that he's sort of for once gotten Shinji to loosen up when confronted with the idea of 
like real intimate contact with another human being. And then at one point, the the lights go off in the bathhouse. And, you know, the the conversation up to that point has gotten very personal. And so Kyle was just like, so, uh, want to get out of here? Well, yeah, well it's specifically <laughs> that that Shinji has established that he he's afraid of going home right now. And so it's not like a proposition necessarily, but it's just Kaoru saying, why don't you sleep at the, my place? You know? Yeah, it's it's not it's not like it's not explicitly a proposition. It just sort of feels like one a little right, bit. Right. Um, and so Shinji and Kaoru go to Kaoru's apartment and they sleep together in the same bedroom and they talk some more. And they're they're shooting these glances back and forth between each other. And it's just, man, there's something about this relationship that just feels so I don't know. Shinji's gotten the shit kicked out of him for, for like 24 <laughs> episodes of television, you know? Um, no one is ever like this with Shinji. No one ever lets Shinji be comfortable. No one ever prioritizes Shinji's comfort. And yeah, Karu is just the most laid back dude. And I think in this moment, when they're together in Karu's bedroom, Shinji just realizes that like, this is... This is the only relationship that he has that's like this. Yeah, he's he he just has a, a quiet moment where he wonders to himself why he's sharing so much with this person that he met literally eight hours ago. And yeah, it comes to the realization that he can't do this with anyone else in his life. Right. There's just, there's no difficulty. There's no difficulty with Karu. Because again, Karu... You know, one thing I notice about these scenes is that not only does Karu not ask anything of Shinji, um, but Shinji also never really asks very much of Karu. So it, it's not even, it, it almost starts to feel selfish in a way, right? Because it's like, um, you know, a term that gets thrown a lot these days, like emotional labor. <laughs> and it's like, this is, a, on the one hand, this is a very glamorized friendship that's developing between these two characters. But it's also very stark how much of the labor, the emotional labor that Kaoru is doing in this relationship and how Shinji really is, um, he's happy, but he's, he's just offloading. Yeah, he's just offloading yeah. and he's passive and he's not really doing, like, this, the energy that Kaoru is giving him, it's not like Shinji is giving it back. It feels like, it feels like a free therapy yeah, session. yeah. Um, but it's whimsical. Yeah, it's just whimsical I mean, and one-sided, is how I'd put it. Like the good feeling yeah. is mutual, but it's just that in terms of the sort of emotional effort of this relationship, Kairu is the one who's doing all of the work, and Shinji is sort of like a guy in a massage parlor who's just like, "Oh, this feels nice," you know. Except for the fact that Kairu is, um, we were right to be suspicious of him because turns out he's working for Sele. Right. He's having like a really shady meeting. <laughs> Doesn't he have like a week? At, at dawn? Like he is, <laughs> like, there's a really funny beat where Masato is like watching him with like binoculars. He's like outside. From the cliffside. She's just, she's just outside. She's just like, God, this kid is so creepy. All he does is get up every morning and walk by the water and talk to himself. Yeah, he's also like standing on a rock in the middle of the, the fucking sea <laughs> or in the middle of the lake. Um, Everything about it is sketchy, and you you because you see Kaoru in contact with Sele, you're just like, oh, this is going to a bad place. <laughs> um, 
oh, this is going to have a sad yes. ending. <laughs> and then, you know, the next thing we see is... Right, so soon after, we're on the catwalk, and Kaoru is giving Unit 2 a very strange speech, um, talking about, you know, in, in short, abbreviated terms about the history of the world and his mission and blah, 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 whatever. Anyway, he's only wearing his school clothes and... Then he activates unit he two. Starts floating. And, then he and he starts floating. He levitates, he levitates and he activates he levitates. unit two. And he's just like, all right, come on, let's go. And they both just begin to float down the shaft towards terminal. The Bar. alarms go off quickly. The command center realizes that Kaoru is an angel. Is the 17th angel. Um, which in this case means that Sele specifically sent an angel into uh, the command center. Um, and and put an angel in an Evangelion cockpit. And now, Kaoru, who's not even in the cockpit of Unit 2, is just sort of puppeteering Unit 2 through telepathy, is penetrating down, down, down into the depths of the terminal dogma, where all the previous angels appeared to be trying to go. And Kaoru is just floating there. He doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't have to do any of the crucifix explosions, penetrate the armor. He- Kaoru isn't like, he hasn't, his hair hasn't even been yeah, messed up. Yeah. Like he's not sweating. Yeah. He, he's not, he's not breathing even hard. in a uniform, right? He is he is he is the And still smiling. Yeah, still he's smiling. smiling. He's floating down. The command center rallies and they're, you know, Gendo is like send unit 1. So, that means Shinji's got to go down there. And Shinji's dispatched. He's descending in terminal dogma and he knows that he's pursuing Kaoru and he is just Shinji's pissed because he's, he feels betrayed, obviously, in this moment. He's, he's falling through terminal dogma, and he starts talking to Kaoru, and he tries to stab Kaoru with the knife. Um, and Kaoru throws up this, this huge AT field, and the knife can't even begin to cut through it. And Shinji's surprised that Kaoru, who in his corporal form looks like a human, Shinji's like, you have an AT field too. And Kaoru sort of treats it like it's a sort of trivial question. He's sort of like, ah, an AT field. I forget. That's what you humans oh, call it. That is what the livings <laughs> call it. That is yeah. what you call it's, the it's, light of the human soul. <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, it is, it is kind of hilarious, but it is like where you. F- kind of get a definition of what the AT field is or what it symbolically represents, which is just like the walls that humans put up to protect their hearts from other people. Right. It is the thing that distinguishes, it is the hard barrier that distinguishes like Justin Charity and Micah Peters, right? It's what separates us into two different spheres of existence. And everyone has an AT field, not just the, not just the, the Evangelion units, not just the angels, but every being has an AT field that is sort of, I guess it defines the limit of one's individuality. Uh, and and Kaoru's is really powerful. <laughs> and, uh, so Shinji can't sort of immediately kill Kaoru. And so Kaoru starts like manipulating unit two to wrestle with unit one. And so they have this, they have this free fall cage match. I don't even know how else to describe it, right? They're just wrestling all the way down the shaft to Terminal Dogma. Right. So Unit 1 and Unit 2 are 
having they're they're grappling with each other. They're they're having this this cage match in the shaft. And Kaoru has meanwhile made his way down to Terminal Dark. He's still floating. He's yeah. fo- his hands have not left his He's pockets coasting. yet. He's coasting. He's coasting. Yeah. And he he floats right up to Adam, this thing that 16 other angels before him have struggled mightily and died to trying to get to. And he kind of has a bit of an epiphany. Yeah. He he um basically understands in that moment what both sides of the conflict are trying to do right. and kind of decides that he wants no part of either. Well, yeah, it's like in that moment where he's staring at the angel on the cross, he sort of hesitates. And in that it's in that moment, Unit 1 barges into the room with Kaoru, having having flattened Ava Unit 2 finally. Yeah, like the way it is, is the door opens with a thud and it's Unit 2 falling to the, to the ground with a progressive knife stuck in yeah, its head. Yes. Uh... And so in that moment, Unit 1 reaches out and just grabs Kaoru. And Kaoru doesn't fight back. Instead, he just sort of turns to Shinji. And he's like, okay, I got to explain some shit. One of the first things Kaoru says in this moment is that, oh, this isn't Adam. This is Lilith. Uh, So you you understand in this moment that the characters in the show were under the impression that Adam is the angel held in terminal dogma. And that's just not the case. The angel on the cross is actually Lilith. And this, this is significant to, to Kaoru in this moment because he sort of, he turns to Shinji and he's trying to explain that he understands now why the humans were fighting the angels. And he starts talking about the idea of survival and the idea of fighting for one's survival. And he's sort of, he's kind of like praising humanity and saying that you all have done what you've done up to this point because you had the desire to survive. And frankly, I don't really have that same impulse that you all have. And I'm really glad to have met you, Shinji Akari. I think you should be the one of the two of us to live on. So you should go ahead and kill me. And Shinji, even in this moment, like he starts this, he starts this whole battle sequence stabbing at Kaoru. He's clearly pursuing Kaoru through terminal dogma as he was ordered to do. But in the moment where Kaoru says, listen, you're going to live on and I'm going to die. Shinji hesitates and he's like, well, you're the only real friend I've made. I don't want to kill you. But he, he kind of has to. He has to. He right? knows that he knows that Kaoru's dangerous, but he also knows what he also knows Kaoru's will. He knows that Kaoru himself is telling him to do this. And he just doesn't really have he doesn't actually have a choice in this moment. Um like a lot of times when Shinji Akari is in the Ava cockpit. He doesn't he doesn't really have a choice and the show, you know, at this point there is an iconically long like one minute shot where you just see, you know, the music is playing softly and Ava Unit One is not moving and Kaoru is in Ava Unit One's fist and Kaoru is not moving. And after a minute or so, Ava Unit One snaps Kaoru's head off and Kaoru is dead. And the final angel is defeated. And yeah, I mean, Gendo and Ray stand on the catwalk as they wash off Ava Unit One. And, you know, at nightfall, 
Shinji is back by the water where he first met Kaoru, and he's he's sitting on the ground, and Masato's standing with him, and he's just like Shinji's just disgusted. He's he 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 keeps looking back on Kaoru, and he he's looking back on his very very brief relationship with this very strange kid who turned out to be an angel, and he just he agonizes over the fact that Kaoru was the only person who was nice to him. He's arguably the only nice person in this entire television show. And Shinji concludes that Kaoru should have lived and that he should have died. And Masato is trying to coach him through this moment. And really all Masato can say is... Like, you had the will to live and he didn't and he died and that's the way it should be. Which is... It's another one of those instances where... She's trying to coach him, but what he needed was comfort, right, and right. like she's not capable. Yeah, it's of like giving she's trying to, to make some grand pronouncement about Darwinism or some bullshit, and she can't really engage with the fact that she's standing over a fourteen-year-old boy who just lost his best friend. She's too lost in the sauce of just like talking and nerve talk. She's got so many of her own, she's got so much of her own shit going on at this point that she can't expend any more mental energy on solving this problem. Yes, but it's also that the contrast is this episode has been Shinji having these very soft, very constructive, very therapeutic conversations with Kaoru. Kaoru dies, and now he's stuck again having these very stilted um, very cynical conversations with Masato. And all he can say in that moment after Masato speaks is like, he, he tells her that's so cold. And that's the end of the episode. We should reiterate what Micah was saying earlier about this show, despite how amazing it is, um, and despite how popular it is now, uh, as it was airing, the the staff for the show was running out of money. They were running over budget, running over time. And so the last couple episodes of Neon Genesis Evangelion in the wake of Kaoru's death, right? Um, humanity has finally... Nerve! Give all credit to Nerve here. Nerve has finally defeated all of the angels. And you don't really get a conventional resolution to what happens now. Instead, you get... Man, how would you describe this, Micah? We get a series of, like, we are bombarded yeah. by, like, just the most, like, does acid once visuals yeah, about yeah. <laughs> about uh, self acceptance and self denial and repression and. It sort of uses uh, a lot of the visual language of the hallucination sequences from earlier in, earlier in the show. But at this point now, they're all so sparse and so um they they just feel deranged. The way that they're sequenced and put on screen and the way that the dialogue is written, it feels like you are in you, you're walking into somebody's psychological collapse. As this is happening. It's like you, yeah. Imagine this is Shinji's brain kind of being subsumed by whatever happens when a dog runs into a flock of pigeons. 
And the thing is that, like, the first time I watched this late at night, it was you gotta like, watch it late to, at like, night. It was, by the way, you have to watch you, these last. The, the, you have to. You have to watch it. You have to watch it late at night. And the thing is that, like, you have to resist the urge to put it on one and a half speed, <laughs> because the thing is that, like, it is. You are. It, it it feels like these last two episodes sort of hold you for ransom, right? right? It's you are assaulted by a by a litany of very loud and busy images that are alternately disturbing and disorienting. Even the most mundane images, like they're they're sort of these background cuts to um a lot of dead trees in in fog, right? Or there's an auditorium. There's just an empty auditorium with a folding chair in the middle of it. I feel like there's a dual sense to these scenes. It feels like on the one hand, a lot of this is happening in Shinji's head, um, but it feels like it jumps between being exclusively in Shinji's head to being sort of in all of the characters' heads at once. Um because it's basically framed as a, a psychedelic interrogation sequence and different characters take turns being in the hot seat. And in this case, the hot seat is a folding chair in the middle of like a black background or alternatively, the folding chair is in the middle of a, an unattended auditorium. And the characters take turns sitting in the folding chair and agonizing about different concerns that have come up throughout the series. So like Ray agonizes about like the many different versions of her that exist because she's a clone and also about the many different versions of her that exist because, you know, we're all just like, there's the perception of you that exists in Asuka's mind. And then there's the perception of you that exists in Shinji's mind. And then there's the perception of you that exists in Micah's mind. You know, it's like questions of the self, man. Yeah, and all of these are basically conspire to form the thing that you think of as the self. It's very, very, very uh, hits blunt, but it is nonetheless like the it, it's a, it's the show finally lays out explicitly, and it feels hilarious to say explicitly, <laughs> just considering the way that they convey this. <laughs> Um, what they've been hinting at throughout the series with like really cryptic dialogue and like Judeo-Christian iconography um, that ugh, I guess oneness is is like divine, I guess, yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, like the, it's sort of, it's, there's a point in the sequence, right, in this particular episode, uh, which is called Do You Love Me? where we learn that what we're witnessing is kind of... It, we're witnessing the beginning of the Human Instrumentality Project and that the Human Instrumentality Project is about obliterating the distinctions between human beings. So basically knocking down everyone's AT field and all of humanity sort of merging into this messy, singular consciousness. Um but before that can happen, you have, like I said, Ray is interrogating these questions of the self. You have Shinji and Asuka once again sitting in the, the, the hot seat, and they're sort of agonizing over their reasons for piloting the Ava and their reasons for 
desiring praise and their their which I mean, like, I think that we should, like, note that it is very clear by this point that piloting the Ava is shorthand for, like, continuing to live or wanting right. to live. Right. Because at this point, like, these characters have all been re- reduced to these hyper-conflicted, depressive states. And also in these scenes, the Ava's not really there. And it's, al- it's almost like, you know what it is? The folding chair that, that each of the characters sit in, right? Masato, Ray. Shinji and Asuka all sit in this folding chair and it's sort of the folding chair replaces the Ava cockpit in these scenes. And we, yeah. when, we when yes. we launched this series, we were talking about the Ava cockpit as the seat of loneliness. And these episodes just make a literal folding, t- folding chair of loneliness. And all of these characters are, are trying to, it's almost like through pure reason, these characters are trying to mount an argument for why they should continue on despite everything they know about like how toxic their motivations throughout the series have been and how manipulated they've been and how little they control over how other people perceive them. It feels like they're all trying to, they're trying to justify their own existence to themselves in these scenes. Right. And I mean, and I guess we should also talk about how this is the first of two endings for the Evangelion story. And this one is more concerned with the emotional fallout or the emotional stakes of what is narratively happening by this point of the story. Yeah. So at this point in the story, we know that all of the angels have been defeated and all of the Apocrypha have linked into place and Sele is beginning their their big plan, whatever that is. And it kind of, we're, we're pretty sure that it's the end of the world, but you don't really get to see that in these last two episodes. They're more so concerned with the emotional stakes that the end of the world would have for all of the characters thus far involved in the story. Yeah, and it also seizes on all... It it also just sort of seizes on every character's worst quality and how every character's worst quality got them to the end of the world, frankly. Um, and and it's funny because there's a, there's a sort of singular visual language for how these, these self-interrogations play out. Um, but they're each quite distinct with all of the characters. I mean, I think a lot about how, I mean, it feels sort of like therapy. If a cartoon really tried to do intensive therapy, like for instance, if you remember the episode where Masato vomits in an alley and then Kaji walks her home from the wedding, she's remembering a part of that conversation that we didn't see in the moment. And Kaji is talking to Masato and saying, um, well, one, it's like, Masato goes on this tear about how much she hates herself and she just sounds exceedingly self-destructive in this moment. And then Kaji gives this this monologue where he says, you shouldn't try hurting yourself simply because you don't like who you are right now. You'd only be deceiving yourself with the punishment that's fleeting and impulsive. That isn't what you want. And Masato, like part of the energy, the energy of these scenes is that the characters, like, 
they're sort of like they're speaking with they're they're speaking with more surety and emotional clarity than they have it any other yeah, point. Yes, yes. And that's true of the characters who are being hallucinated. Like, So in that scene, we're, we're to imagine that Kaji is being hallucinated by Masad, Masato. And Kaji is speaking very directly about Masato's pathologies. But Masato is more passionately than ever arguing back, right? And she, she tells, she tells yeah. Kaji, like, you're telling me I should take care of myself, aren't you? Men are all like that. And then they go off to work. And she's sort of, she's finally having that argument with Kaji that she's always on the edge of having. But in this final end of the world sequence, Masato and all of these other characters are finally letting it fly. They're having the arguments. They're, they're directly addressing their sort of core fuck-up qualities that they've otherwise been alighting until now. There's this cathartic moment where Asuka, Masato, and Shinji all appear together. And they kind of say the most succinct articulation for each of them of what their core problem is. And it's like Shinji shouts, don't abandon me. And Masato shouts, don't cast me aside. And Asuka shouts, don't kill me. Um, and, and yeah, it's just all of these characters coming together into this very like grotesque, orgy of a psychotherapy session <laughs> where they all like vomit their yeah. truth for like yeah. an hour yeah. um yeah and it, it it's yeah every everybody everybody works their shit out and it is really a difficult thing to to, to twist your brain yeah. around if you're and it's it, as you can as you can clearly see by how much difficulty we're having getting through this it is not something that lends itself well to linear conversation but well then there's a there it, um, it sort of seamlessly transitions to the next episode and you you know shinji in the same sort of surreal language is agonizing about running away and he's agonizing about other people abandoning him and he's he's agonizing about self-hatred. And he briefly imagines every single character in the show calling him on the green phone to say, I hate you. Um, and it's all of this, this, this trippy shit that is then in the final episode of the show punctuated by a quasi-realistic sequence where Shinji wakes up in a strange household in bed. And... It's like Asuka's standing over him and he's like, time to go to school. <laughs> and Asuka, it's like Shinji's woken up late for school. And meanwhile, it's like Gendo and Yui Akari are in the living room. And Gendo's just some boring dad who's reading the newspaper at the kitchen table. And Yui is making breakfast. And, you know, Shinji and Asuka head off to school together and they go to class. And they, I mean, they go to class and it's the familiar homeroom from the normal episodes of the show. But you quickly realize that this is also part of an alternative reality. Well, first of all, it's like Asuka's being very bright and cheery and very friendly with Shinji, and they rush off to school together. And uh, in the homeroom, uh, there's a new student being introduced. Um, and first of all, I should say, the homeroom teacher in this scene is Masato. So Masato is a teacher. Um, she's kind of like otherwise like herself, um, but she's a teacher. And she's introducing a new student to the class. And the new student is Rei Ayanami. But Rei Ayanami has like a weird country accent. And she's... Hi! <laughs> Hi, Rei! I 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It, yeah, she's. She is. It, it's. She. It's and creepy she's, she's, how how she's chipper very chipper she is. and. Uh, but then quickly, Shinji himself is is he's is normal. Like, is over. Is, he's well. He's normal. So I shouldn't he, say normal because again, it's it's Shinji. The problem. She, normal yeah, is relative. He's normal well adjusted. Relative. And in this sequence, Shinji is well-adjusted, and Asuka is well-adjusted, and Gendo and Yui are well-adjusted, and they get to school, and Masato is, well, Masato is just Masato, but she's a teacher, but they meet Rei, and Rei is well-adjusted, but then, you know, Shinji and Asuka and Rei have this weird, like, standoff in the middle of the class, and it feels like this this rom-com love triangle thing that's developing between the three of them, and you quickly realize that this is... This sequence itself, this sort of romantic comedy teen high school situation where all of the characters are not behaving like we know them to behave in the normal timeline, this is a hallucination within the hallucination of the final episode of Evangelion. Um, and <laughs> it's, I struggle with the point of this scene. Um, it's sort of... No, I mean, like, I, it's almost just like, this is... What it is, is that, you know, the point of the scene is to be juxtaposed with, I guess, the ensuing scene, which is Shinji sitting alone on the folding chair again, but in like this, the room is a theater department and nobody else is in there except for Masato hanging over his shoulder, um, talking about how the previous like thing that you saw was one possible version yeah, of reality yes. and this new one that they're sitting in where it's just Shinji alone in a room and no one else around is another version of reality that's possible. Right. And it feels like the final message that the show is driving home to Shinji Ikari is that for this whole show, Shinji has struggled with the decision to pilot the Ava, but he always had a choice. And the show in this last moment is saying, you have more of a choice than you've ever really accepted, Shinji. And you you could lead any kind of life once you start to once you start to take control of your identity, right? Like once you start to take control of what you actually it's sort of like the materialization of all of the early conversations that Masato has with him, right? Of like, if you don't want to pilot the Ava. That's fine, but you need to decide what your identity is going to be instead of that. Um, but Shinji's sort of final apprehension is like, well, but I'm supposed to do that. Like, people hate me, and the only thing I'm good at is piloting the Ava. And yeah, at this point, all of the characters, all the characters sort of materialize, especially Asuka, to be like, you just sort of assumed that. Like, you assumed that, and it's just not true. So much of the show is just Shinji regarding himself as a burden whenever he doesn't want to do what he's told. And in these final moments of the hallucination, all of the characters are saying, you know, a lot of these, a lot of your discomfort, a lot of your anxiety is based on assumptions you made about other people. Um, but they're not real. Like, you have a choice. You can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be. And Shinji's like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> what if? He's like, maybe maybe I can choose. Like, maybe I can. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay for me to be the Shinji Ikari that I want to be 
maybe it's okay for me to be here in this world. And then the hallucination shatters. And <laughs> uh, describe what happens next, Micah, because it's, it's the sort of iconic ending to the television show. The auditorium falls away, and it's kind of, I guess, Shinji floating somewhere in the exosphere. It's like an open, uh, it's, like a, it's like a wide open sky, it's a, though. It's like, it's a, it's a wide open sky and he's surrounded by basically all of the characters whose names we know, uh, by yeah. this point. Toji's there. Um, Yutsuki's there. Yeah, Toji's Gendo. there. Yutsuki's there. Gendo, Kaji, Masato, And they all have the same expressions. The important, they all are smiling at Shinji, and they're standing around him, and they're clapping. And there's a cut of just each of the characters just saying, congratulations, Shinji. Congratulations. 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 Um, congratulating him on finding his will to Pen live. Pen also congratulates him. Please don't forget that. <laughs> Pin Pin does also congratulate him. Can't forget about Pin Pin. Shout out Pin Pin. Uh, yes. Um, yes, and this is the way that the TV series Neon Genesis Evangelion concludes. Right. Let's, let's make an assessment about these two final episodes of television here. Because... I feel like they're very well written. I feel like the way, for, for how janky they maybe feel in terms of how they're constructed, I think a lot of the animation is very distinct and just very, it's burned into my brain from when I first watched this show, however many years ago I watched it. But I also feel like just the way it's written, even though it feels like a, it feels bad on paper, right? On paper, you're like, yeah, the final episode will be like, we'll just explicitly name all of the character conflicts of the show and resolve them by yeah. writing Explicitly out the answer. Explicitly name them and also just completely shift the focus of the show away from the, the thing that we were narratively proceeding right. towards. And it's, it's, it feels almost like cheating and it feels almost cheap, except, I don't know, the way that the characters are written in these hallucin like these hallucinated interrogations there's consistent internal yeah. logic to it, despite the fact that it's as busy and as foreign, as avant-garde as it is. Yes. And it also feels like in the later episodes of the TV show, so much of the, the tension, so much of the conflict is generated by characters just very successfully over time being fucked up, but avoiding very direct confrontation with the people they have problems with or the core issues they have problems with. And so in a way... Even though it feels kind of messy these last two episodes, it really does feel like in a very innovative way, the show forces each of these characters to engage with what the fuck their problem is. There is just something very uncanny about how well it works and how it actually does feel very well written, even though I just feel like anybody else other than Hideaki Anno who would have tried to pull this shit, it would have felt the opposite of what it feels here. It would have felt cheap. It would have felt like, uh, it would have felt insincere. It would have felt inauthentic. And yet I think in these episodes of television, it just feels like this sort of direct, unrelenting, uh, very articulate indictment is what each of these characters has earned. Let me ask you something as somebody that watched the show when it was first on American television when you were 15. Did you feel that way about the final two episodes? Well, see, the problem, 
when they when you first saw them because I mean I know that there like there was a considerable backlash after you know it's kind of just like how they I don't know have the finale of Sex of the City in Paris <laughs> or like you know the fade the fade to black on on yeah, the Sopranos yeah, I, or whatever well, I, it is different because I didn't watch it uh and like the problem is that I watched it around 2002 by the time that Ava was on DVD which meant that I also mm-hmm. watched it by the time that I knew End of Evangelion was a movie and so um I binge-watched it. I know people pretend that Netflix invented binge-watching, but let me tell you, I binge-watched Evangelion in 2002 on DVD sets. And, you know, I I had the benefit of knowing that there is an alternative ending to this TV series. And so I can't really replicate the feeling of somebody who watched, who watched this show in 96 when the finale was airing and when the TV series finale was all there was. Because, like, that person I can understand being frustrated by the ending. Because as sort of... um, I think it really, really does a lot of great shit with what otherwise feels like a show trying to survive the fact that it ran out of money. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But but as much as I think it resolves a lot of the emotional turmoil of... Shinji in particular, I do think that on a narrative level, it lets a lot of characters down. It's sort of, you get this emotional resolution with Shinji, but like I'm a person who has always watched Ava with a particular interest in Asuka. Like Asuka is the character who, as a kid and even as an adult, unfortunately, I relate to. And if I only had the TV series ending, it's sort of, Asuka doesn't really get closure in the TV series finale because the TV series finale kind of, um, it's like instrumentality kind of funnels everything about Evangelion through Shinji. And so the series only really resolves Shinji. And it resolves him in this super artful way. But if you want, I don't know. It's if you wanted to see a broader plot resolution, or even if you wanted to see some real justice for like Masato or for Asuka, it's just unsatisfying. And I like, I understand being dissatisfied. If you saw this and mm-hmm. you were like, this is the only finale to Evangelion there is, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Right, right, right. Well, Luckily, there's a whole ass movie finale that we get to talk about in which there's plenty of Asuka oh, yeah. and plenty there's of Masato. Plenty of, well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of these characters. There's a lot of, there's, a, there's, it's too much. I, of these we'll characters. give you this caveat. We'll say this the TV series ending is very, it's bizarre, it's unconventional. It's also, it's strangely optimistic. I wouldn't say it's entirely optimistic. And there's something to the fact that even though it ends with, all the characters from the show clapping for Shinji Ikari and saying congratulations. It's because it's so illusory. You sort of end the TV series finale with this sense of like, what what of what I just watched is real? And also, literally the final shot of the show is Shinji smiling and being like, I did it, whatever it is. But yeah. you, it feels so illusory that you don't know whether you've been had. You don't know. It, it feels like there are dark undertones to that conclusion. And you don't 
just because of everything it, that yeah, preceded it, and, it. Right. It's everything it's, that preceded it feels so real and so direct and so explicitly written to make the characters uncomfortable. And yet the happy moment at the very end of the show, it feels fake. It feels happy, but it feels fake as hell. Like, Gendo shouldn't be smiling. When the fuck does he smile? If he's smiling, that, that's a that's a Gendo clone. <laughs> It feels fake. It's optimistic, but it feels fake. And the end. And so, when we talk about the end of Evangelion in the final episode of Sound Only, one thing I will say with, for this movie is that it feels a lot more pessimistic than the TV series finale. But it feels real as hell. <laughs> yeah, it feels very true to the story that we were building yeah. uh, through these, through well, twenty three of these episodes yeah. at least. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a bit more explicit about what instrumentality is and how it worked and how humanity got there. Uh, but otherwise... And it is much more accusatory of its yeah, characters. Yeah. Uh, but that'll be our final episode of Sound Only. Man, Micah. <laughs> Damn. Damn, dog. <laughs> I can't believe they let us hijack a <laughs> control. They let us hijack a control booth at the ringer to talk about this goddamn <laughs> television show. Can you believe it? Ah, Shinji. Now, ah, man. Shinji, I've been. We really did that. I've show, wanted right? to record this podcast with you ever since. It's. It seems like uh, sometimes I think that maybe I was born to do this podcast <laughs> with you. Ah, sound only the highest achievement of the Lillian culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll be back after the 4th of July to give you the final episode of Sound Only where we'll talk about the end of Evangelion and then hopefully The Ringer will give us a podcast about Cowboy Bebop okay bye bye everybody bye, bye. on that, on that bye. Bob show goodbye <laughs> see you next week QAnon is very Avacore. You know what I mean? Like, if you fuck with QAnon, you will probably like Evangelion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like all the Sele shit. All of that is what QAnon is talking about. All of that shit. Pizzagate, that's basically... <laughs> like, the Marduk <laughs> Institute is fucking Pizzagate. Like, that, it, it has that energy. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, teach these devils. Open up, open up your mind's eye. You know what I'm saying? Because... And then if you go through the, the cerebellum, then you can talk to God through meditation. Right, right. Mm. It's, <laughs> seriously, though, this is the Hotep. It's, mm, it's the Hotep. It's the Hotep Pizzagate axis. It, it's, you know, the thing is that this, this, is, is, at the this heart is, of everything. 